Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. I hope you're doing well today. It's a beautiful afternoon here in the southeastern part of the United States where I am, and I hope it's that way for you as well, wherever you are. Now, I have for you today a preview of Ernest J. Gaines' A Lesson Before Dying. Now, the Chicago Tribune calls this book, it it says that this majestic moving novel is an instant classic, a book that will be read, discussed, and taught beyond the rest of our lives. And after having, having read it, I think that, yeah, the Chicago Tribune was on to something because it really, really is amazing. So I'm so happy to present it to you here at Carla Reads the Classics. But before I get started with that, I would ask you to please support the podcast. You can do that with a donation through Cash App or PayPal, or if you would uh, subscribe to the podcast, that would be absolutely absolutely amazing. And I would also ask you to head over to the YouTube channel to subscribe there as well, the YouTube channel of the same name. And if you like merchandise, check the episode details for how you can obtain that as well. So I think that's all the housekeeping I have for right now. Um, So without further delay, I give you Ernest J. Gaines' A Lesson Before Dying, a preview here at Carla Reads the Classics. Please stay tuned. One, I was not there, yet I was there. No, I did not go to the trial. I did not hear the verdict because I knew all along what it would be. Still, I was there. I was there as much as anyone else was there. Either I sat behind my aunt and his godmother or I sat beside them. Both are large women, but his godmother is larger. She is of average height, 5'4", 5'5", but weighs nearly 200 pounds. Once she and my aunt had found their places, two rows behind the table where he sat with his court-appointed attorney, his godmother became as immobile as a great stone or as one of our oak or cypress stumps. She never got up once to get water or to go to the bathroom down in the basement. She just sat there staring at the boy's clean-cropped head where he sat at the front of the table with his lawyer. Even after he had gone to await the juror's verdict, her eyes remained in that one direction. She heard nothing said in the courtroom, not by the prosecutor, not by the defense attorney, not by my aunt. Oh, yes, she did hear one word, one word for sure. Hog. It was my aunt whose eyes followed the prosecutor as he moved from one side of the courtroom to the other, pounding his fist into the palm of his hand, pounding the table where his papers lay, pounding the rail that separated the jurors from the rest of the courtroom. It was my aunt who followed his every move, not his godmother. She was not even listening. She had gotten tired of listening. She knew as we all knew what the outcome would be. A white man had been killed during a robbery, and though two of the robbers had been killed on the spot, one had been captured, and he, too, would have to die. Though he told them no, he had nothing to do with it, that he was on his way to the White Rabbit Bar and Lounge when the brother and bear drove up beside him and offered him a ride. After he got into the car, they asked if he had any money. When he told them he didn't have a single solitary dime, it was then that Brother and Bear started talking credit, saying that old Gropé should not mind crediting them a pint since he knew them well, and 
He knew that the grinding season was coming soon and they would be able to pay him back then. The store was empty except for the old storekeeper, Alcy Groupe, who sat on a stool behind the counter. He spoke first. He asked Jefferson about his godmother. Jefferson told him his, his nanan was all right. Old Gropay nodded his head. You tell her for me, I say hello, he told Jefferson. He looked at brother and bear, but he didn't like them. He didn't trust them. Jefferson could see that in his face. Do for you boys, he asked. A bottle of that apple white there, Mr. Gropay, bear said. Old Gropay got the bottle off the shelf, but he did not set it on the counter. He could see that the boys had already been drinking, and he became suspicious. You boys got money? he asked. Brother and Bear spread out all the money they had in their pockets on, on top of the counter. Old Gropay counted it with his eyes. That's not enough, he said. Come on now, Mr. Gropay, they pleaded with him. You know you're going to get your money soon as grinding start. No, he said. Money is slack everywhere. You bring the money, you get your wine. He turned to put the bottle back on the shelf. One of the boys, the one called Bear, started around the corner. You, stop there, Gropay told him. Go back. Bear had been drinking and his eyes were glossy. Were glossy. He walked unsteadily, grinning all the time as he continued around the corner. Go back, Gropay told him. I mean, the last time now, go back, Bear continued. Gropay moved quickly toward the cash register where he withdrew a revolver and started shooting. Soon, there was shooting from another direction. When it was quiet again, Bear, Gropay, and Brother were all down on the floor and only Jefferson was standing. He wanted to run, but he couldn't run. He couldn't even think. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know how he had gotten there. He couldn't remember ever getting into the car. He couldn't remember a thing he had done all day. He heard a voice calling. He thought the voice was coming from the liquor shelves. Then he realized that old Gropay was not dead and that it was he who was calling. He made himself go to the end of the counter. He had to look across Bear to see the storekeeper. Both lay between the counter and the shelves of alcohol. Several bottles had been broken, and alcohol and blood covered their bodies as well as the floor. He stood there gaping at the old man, slumped against the bottom shelf of gallons and half gallons of wine. He didn't know whether he should go with him or whether he should run, run out of there. The old man continued to call, Boy! 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 Jefferson became frightened. The old man was still alive. He had seen him. He would tell on him. Now he started babbling. It, it wasn't me. It wasn't me, Mr. Gropay. It, it was brother and bear. Brother shot you. It wasn't me. They made me come with them. You, you've got to tell the law that, Mr. Gropay. You hear me, Mr. Gropay? But he was talking to a dead man. Still, he did not run. He didn't know what to do. He didn't believe that this had happened. Again, he couldn't remember how he had gotten there. He didn't know whether he had come there with brother and bear or whether he had walked in and seen all this after it happened. 
He looked from one dead body to the other. He didn't know whether he should call someone on the telephone or run. He had never dialed a telephone in his life, but he had seen other people use them. He didn't know what to do. He was standing by the liquor shelf and suddenly he realized he needed to drink and, and he needed it badly. He snatched a bottle off the shelf, wrung off the cap, and turned up the bottle all in one continuous motion. The whiskey burned him like fire, his chest, his belly, even his nostrils. His eyes watered. He shook his head to clear his mind. Now he began to realize where he was. Now he began to realize fully what had happened. Now he knew he had to get out of there. He turned. He saw the money in the cash register under little wire clamps. He knew taking money was wrong. If his nanan, his nanan had told him never to steal. He didn't want to steal, but he didn't have a solitary dime in his pocket and nobody was around, so who could say he stole it? Surely not one of the dead men. He was halfway across the room, the money stuffed inside his jacket pocket, the half bottle of whiskey clutched in his hand when two white men walked into the store. That was his story. The prosecutor's story was different. The prosecutor argued that Jefferson and the other two had gone there with the full intention of robbing the old man and then killing him so that he could not identify them. When the old man and the other two robbers were all dead, this one, it proved the kind of animal he really was, stuffed the money into his pockets and celebrated the event by drinking over their still bleeding bodies. The defense argued that Jefferson was innocent of all charges except being at the wrong place at the wrong time. There was absolutely no proof that there had been a conspiracy between himself and the other two. The fact that Mr. Gropay shot only brother and bear was proof of Jefferson's innocence. Why, why did Mr. Gropay shoot one boy twice and never shoot at Jefferson once? Because Jefferson was merely an innocent bystander. He took the whiskey to calm his nerves, not to celebrate. He took the money out of hunger and plain stupidity. Gentlemen of the jury, look at this. This, this boy... I almost said, said man, but I can't say man. Oh, sure, he has reached the age of 21 when we civilized men consider the male species has reached manhood. But would you call this, this, this man? No, not I. I would call it a boy and a fool. A fool is not aware of right and wrong. A fool does what others tell him to do. A fool got into that automobile. A man with a modicum of intelligence would have seen that those racketeers meant no good. But not a fool. A fool got into that automobile. A fool rode to the grocery store. A fool stood by and watched this happen, not having the sense to run. Gentlemen of the jury, look at him. Look at him. Look at this. Do you see a man sitting here? Do you see a man sitting here? I ask you, I implored. Look carefully. Do you see a man sitting here? Look at the shape of the skull, this face as flat as the palm of my hand. Look deeply into those eyes. Do you see a modicum of intelligence? Do you see anyone here who could plan a murder, a robbery, can plan, can plan, can, can plan anything? A cornered animal to strike quickly out of fear, a trait inherited from his ancestors in the deepest jungle of blackest Africa. Yes, yes, that he can do. But to plan, 
to plan? Gentlemen of the jury? No, gentlemen, this skull here holds no plans. What you see here is a thing that acts on command, a thing to hold the handle of a plow, a thing to load your bales of cotton, a thing to dig your ditches, to chop your wood, to pull your corn. That is what you see here. But you do not see anything capable of planning a robbery or a murder. He does not even know the size of his clothes or his shoes. Ask him to name the months of the year. Ask him, does Christmas come before or after the 4th of July? Mention the names of Keats, Byron, Scott, and see whether the eyes will show one moment of recognition. Ask him to describe a rose, to quote one passage from the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Gentlemen of the jury, this man planned a robbery? Oh, pardon me, pardon me. I surely did not mean to insult your intelligence by saying, man, would you please forgive me for committing such an error? Gentlemen of the jury, who would be hurt if you took his, if you took this life? Look back to that second row. Please look. I want all 12 of you honorable men to turn your heads and look back to, to that second row. What you see there has, what you see there has been everything to him. Mama, grandmother, godmother, everything. Look at her, gentlemen of the jury. Look at her well. Take this away from her, and she has no reason to go on living. We may see him as not much, but he's her reason for existence. Think on that, gentlemen. Think on it. Gentlemen of the jury, be merciful. For God's sake, be merciful. He is innocent of all charges brought against him. But let us say he was not. Let us for a moment say he was, say he was not. What justice would there be to take this life? Justice, gentlemen? Why, I would just as soon put a hog in the electric chair as this. I thank you, gentlemen, from the bottom of my heart for your kind patience. I have no more to say except this. We must live with our own conscience. Each and every one of us must live with his own conscience. The jury retired and, and it returned a verdict after lunch, guilty of robbery and murder in the first degree. The judge commended the 12 white men for reaching a quick and just verdict. This was Friday. He would pass sentence on Monday. 10 o'clock on Monday, Miss Emma and my aunt sat in the same seats they had occupied on Friday. Reverend Mose Ambrose, the pastor of their church, was with them. He and my aunt sat on either side of Miss Emma. The judge, a short red-faced man with snow-white hair and thick black eyebrows, asked Jefferson if he had anything to say before the sentencing. My aunt said that Jefferson was looking down at the floor and shook his head. The judge told Jefferson that he had been found guilty of the charges brought against him and that the judge saw no reason that he should not pay for the part he played in this horrible crime. Death by electrocution. The governor would set the date. Two. When I came home from school that afternoon, I saw my aunt and Miss Emma sitting at the table in the kitchen. I was sorry now that I had come directly home because Miss Emma was the last person I wanted to see. Just like everyone else in the quarter, I knew what the sentence was going to be, and I didn't want to have to look into her face. 
I hurried to my room with the satchel of papers that I had brought from school to work on that night. After laying the satchel on the table that I used as a desk, I sat down on the bed as quietly as I could. Neither my aunt nor Miss Emma had seen me come in, but they knew it was the time of day for me to be there. I tried to think of a way to make a quick appearance in the kitchen for courtesy's sake and then leave. I didn't want to look into that face any more than I had to. It was late October, and though I wore a wool shirt under my jacket, I was a little cold. I thought how nice it would be to sit inside the Rainbow Club in Bayonne. I had a lot of work to do, but I didn't feel like being there, not as long as Miss Emma was in the house. I couldn't hear a sound from the kitchen. I wondered if I could sneak out of the house before my aunt saw me. I got up from the bed, and I was near the door when I heard footsteps in her bedroom. I hurried back to the table and took some papers out of the satchel. When she came into my room, I had sat down at the table and was pretending to read. She stood looking at me. Ain't you going to speak to Miss Emma? She said. I was going to. I was just looking over some papers. She want to talk to you. What about? I asked. She can tell you. I have to go to Bayonne, Tante Lou. I said, something for the school. I'm sure this won't take all day. The store closes at five, Tante Lou, I said. It's almost four now. You can spare a few minutes, my aunt said, especially today. She didn't say any more. She didn't have to. She was sure I knew what had happened. We looked at each other a moment. Then I looked down at the student's paper that I had taken from the satchel. The fourth grade writing was nearly illegible, but even if it had been typed, I would not have been able to concentrate long enough to read it. My aunt, standing back watching me, knew I was not reading. I pushed the papers away and followed her through her room, back into the kitchen. Miss Emma sat at the kitchen table, staring out into the yard. I wanted to speak to her, but I wasn't sure that she even knew I was there. Sit down, Grant, my aunt said. I can stand, Tante Lou. Sit down, she said. She sat down first, next to Miss Emma, so that I would have to sit opposite both of them. And this way they could look at me at the same time, or take turns. How are you, Miss Emma? I said. Making out, she said. She stared out into the yard. My aunt looked down at the table, and I waited, afraid to even think what Miss Emma might want to speak to me about. Miss Emma was in her early or mid-seventies. My aunt was in her seventies, and I figured they were pretty much the same age. Miss Emma's hair was gray and combed up and penned on top. I had noticed her floppy brown felt hat and her overcoat on my aunt's bed on our, on our way back to the kitchen. Her name was Emma Glenn, but no one except her closest friends and the white people on the river ever called her anything but Miss Emma. Her husband, who was dead now, had called her Miss Emma, and she had called him Mr. Oscar, and that is how we are on that plantation, and that is how we on that plantation had grown up, addressing them. Except for Jefferson. He called her Nanan, and he had called Mr. Oscar Perrain godmother and godfather. 
Miss Emma continued to stare into the yard, but I was sure she was not seeing anything out there. There was nothing out there to see but jimson weeds and crabgrass and the rows of cane that ran parallel to the yard and about a hundred feet away from the kitchen where we sat. Miss Emma was not seeing any of that. She was remembering. She was thinking. She was not seeing. Called him a hog. She said that. And it was quiet again. My aunt looked at me, then back down at the table. I waited. I know he was just trying to get him off, but they didn't pay that no mind. Still give him death. She turned her head slowly and looked directly at me. Her large, dark face showed all the pain she had gone through this day. This past weekend, no, the pain I saw in that face came from many years past. I don't want them to kill no hog, she said. I want a man to go to that chair on his own two feet. I waited, not knowing what was coming, but she was finished talking. Now both she and my aunt looked at me as though I was supposed to figure out the rest of it. We stared at one another a few seconds before what they expected began to dawn on me. Wait, I said, wait. Neither one had said a thing until I started to get up and my aunt told me to sit back down. Sit down for what? I asked her. Just sit down, she said. I settled back on the chair, but not all the way back. I was ready to get up at any moment. He don't have to do it, Miss Emma said, looking beyond me again. Do what? I asked her. You don't have to do it, she said again. It was dry, mechanical, unemotional, but I could tell by her face and by my aunt's face that they were not about to give up on what they had in mind. What do you want me to do? I asked her. What can I do? It's only a matter of, it's only a matter of weeks, a couple of months maybe. What, what can I do that you haven't done for the past 21 years? You the teacher, she said. Yes, I'm the teacher, I said, and I teach what the white folks around here tell me to teach, reading, writing, and arithmetic. They never told me how to keep a black boy out of a liquor store. You watch your tongue, sir, my aunt said. I sat back in the chair and looked at both of them. They sat there like boulders, their bodies, their minds, immovable. He don't have to, Miss Emma said again. He going to do it, my aunt said. Oh, I said, you going to do it, she said. We going up there and talk to Mr. Henry. Talk to Henry Pichot? For what? I asked her. So you have the right to visit Jefferson. What's Henry Pichot got to do with this? His brother-in-law is the sheriff, ain't he? I waited for her to say more, but she did not. I got up from the table. And where do you think you going? Tante Lou asked me. To Bayonne, where I can breathe, I said. I can't breathe here. You ain't going to no Bayonne till you go up to the quarter, she said. You gonna see Mr. Henry with me and Emma, there. I had walked away, but now I came back and leaned over the table toward both of them. Tante Lou, Miss Emma, Jefferson is dead. It is only a matter of weeks, maybe a couple of months, but he's already dead. The past 21 years, we've done all we could for Jefferson. 
He's dead now, and I can't raise the dead. All I can do is try to keep the others from ending up like this. But he's gone from us. There's nothing I can do anymore, nothing any of us can do anymore. You going with us up the quarter, my aunt said, as though I hadn't said a word. You going up there with us, Grant, or you don't sleep in this house tonight. I stood back from the table and looked at both of them. I clapped my jaws so tight the veins in my neck felt as if they would burst. I wanted to scream at my aunt. I was screaming inside. I had told her many, many times how much I hated this place and all I wanted to do was get away. I had told her I was no teacher. I hated teaching and I was just running in place here. But she had not heard me before and I knew that no matter how loud I screamed, she would not hear me now. I'm getting my coat and I'll be ready to go, she said. Emma? Three. My gray 46 Ford was parked in front of the house. Tante Lou in her black overcoat and black rimless hat, and Miss Emma in her brown coat with the rabbit fur around the collar and sleeves, and her floppy brown felt hat followed me out to the car and stood back until I had opened the door for them. Not only was I going up to Henry Pichot's house against my will, but I had to perform all the courtesies of chauffeur as well. After they had settled into the back seat, filling it completely, I slammed the door and went around to the other side and got in. I could feel my aunt's eyes on the back of my neck for shutting the door as I did. Miss Emma probably would have looked at me the same way, but her mind was on other things. As I drove by the church where I taught school, I thought about all the work I had to do, and I reminded myself that I had to see one of the men on the plantation about getting a load of firewood for the heater. I tried to remember who had brought us the last wagon load of wood. Fifteen or twenty families sent their children to the school, and I always made it a point, they expected it of me, to ask them to do something for the school during the six-month session. I would ask one of the older children to tell me who had brought in the last load of wood. I stopped at the gate. I stopped at the side gate to Henry Pichot's large white and gray antebellum house. When my aunt started to get out of the car to open the gate for me, I told her to keep her seat because I had nothing to do all day but serve. I felt her eyes on the back of my neck again, then on the side of my face as I pushed open the gate and on me directly as I came back to the car. After driving into the yard, I had to get out again to shut the gate. Since the side entrance led from the quarter to the house, Henry Pichot never used this gate. Only tractors, wagons, and trucks used this entrance, and over many years they had cut just as many ruts across the yard. I must have hit every one of them driving up to the house. My, my aunt never said a thing, but I could feel her eyes on the back of my neck. I was not aiming for the ruts, but I wasn't avoiding them either. I could hear them bouncing on the back seat, but they never said a word. After parking under one of the great live oaks, not far from the back door, I turned around to look at my aunt. Am I supposed to go in there too? She looked at me, but she didn't answer me. She thought I had hit one of those ruts on purpose. It was you who said you never wanted me to go through that back door ever again. Do I have to keep reminding you, Grant, this ain't just another day? He don't have to go, 
Miss Emma said for about the hundredth time. She was looking at me, but not seeing me and not meaning what she was saying either. He's going, my aunt said. She was definitely seeing me. Mr. Henry won't come to him. Oh, yes, I keep forgetting that, I said. Mr. Henry won't come to me. After a minute of grunting and straining, they were able to get out of the car. I followed them into the inner yard, up the stairs to the back door. The maid, Inez Lane, had seen us come up into the yard and she opened the door for us. Inez was in her early 40s, I suppose. She wore a white dress, white shoes, a blue gingham apron, and a kerchief on her head. She had a dark mole on her left cheek. She nodded to my aunt and me and spoke to Miss Emma. I heard, she said. I would like to speak to Mr. Henry if he's home, Miss Emma said. Talking to Mr. Lo talking to Mr. Lewis in the library, Inez said. Like to speak to him if he don't mind, Miss Emma said. Inez nodded and left us. I looked around the kitchen. I, I had come into this kitchen many times as a small child to bring in wood for the stove, to bring in a chicken I had caught and killed, eggs I had found in the grass, and figs, pears, pecans I had gathered from the trees in the yard. Miss Emma was the cook up here then. She wore the white dress and white shoes and the kerchief around her head. She had been here long before I was born, probably when my mother and father were children. She had cooked for the old Pichots, the parents of Henry Pichot. She had cooked for Henry and his brother and sister, as well as for his nieces and nephews. He did not have any children of his own. She cooked. She ran the house. My aunt washed and ironed. And I ran through the yard to get the things they needed to cook or to cook with. As a child growing up on this plantation, I could not imagine this place this house existing without the two of them here. But before I left for the university, my aunt sat me down at the table in our kitchen and said to me, me and Emma can make out all right without you coming through that back door ever again. I had not come through that back door once since leaving for the university 10 years before. I had been teaching on the place going on six years, and I had not been in Pichot's yard, let alone gone up to the back stairs or through the back door. I saw both my aunt and Miss Emma looking around the kitchen. Some things had changed since they left, others had not. The big black iron pot still hung against the wall, but the wood-burning oven that I had known and that they had known had been exchanged for a gas range and a big white refrigerator had taken the place of a smaller icebox. The war had changed all that. After so many of the young colored men had gone into military service or left a plantation, there was no one to chop the wood and haul the ice. And when they left, so did the old people, my aunt and Miss Emma. I did not hear Inez knock on the library door or hear her call, but I did hear Henry Pichot's voice. Yes, Inez, what is it? Then a moment later, who? And a moment after that, did she say what she wanted? And later, go back there and ask her what she wants. Inez came back into the kitchen. Just tell him I'd like to speak to him, Miss Emma said. It's important. Inez started back up the hall, but Henry Pichot had already left the library. He was a medium-sized man of medium weight. 
He wore a gray suit, a white shirt, and a gray and white striped tie. He could have been in his mid-sixties. His hair was white and long. He held a drink. Louis Rogon, who followed him into the kitchen, was taller, heavier, and maybe a year or two younger. He wore a black pinstripe suit, and he also held a drink. Louis Rogon's people owned a bank in St. Adrian, a small town about 15 miles west of Henry Pichot's plantation. Mr. Henry? Mr. Louis? Miss Emma spoke to them. My aunt nodded. I didn't. I stood back near the door. What can I do for you, Emma? Pichot asked her. He seemed annoyed that he had been disturbed while he had company. I want to ask you a favor, Mr. Henry, Miss Emma said. He drank from his glass and looked at her. It's Jefferson, she said. Yes, I heard, he said, and waited. I want to ask you a favor. I can't change what's been handed down by the court, he said. I spoke up before the trial. I can't say any more. Yes, sir, she said. But that's not what I have come to ask you for. I came to ask you something else. Miss Emma looked tired. She was tired. She wanted to sit down at the table, but no one had offered her a chair. My aunt put her arm around, put her, arm around her shoulder to comfort her and to help her stand. I looked at the two white men who raised their glasses. Henry Pichot finished his drink and stuck out his hand. Inez knew what it meant, and she came forward to get the empty glass. Then she turned to Louis Rougon, who had stuck out his glass, empty of everything except two or three small cubes of ice. She took the glasses to a liquor counter to refresh the drinks. They called my boy a hog, Mr. Henry. Miss Emma said. I didn't raise no hog, and I don't want no hog to go sit in that chair. I want a man to go sit in that chair, Mr. Henry. He looked at her, but he didn't say anything. He was waiting for his drink. I'm old, Mr. Henry, she went on. Jefferson go need me, but I'm too old to be going up there. My heart won't take it. I want you to talk to the sheriff for me. I want somebody else to take my place. That's up to you and Mr. Sam, isn't it? Pichot said, and he took the drink off the tray that Inez held before him. I need you to speak for me, Mr. Henry, Miss Emma said. I want the teacher visit my boy. I want the teacher make him know he's not a hog, he's a man. I want him to know that before he go to the chair, Mr. Henry. Henry Pichot glanced at me, then looked back at her. I done done a lot for this family and this place, Mr. Henry, she said. All I'm asking you, all I'm asking you, talk to the sheriff for me. I, I done a lot for this family over the years. I can't promise anything, he said, and sipped his drink. You can speak for your brother-in-law and say what? I want the teacher talk to my boy for me. He looked over her head at me standing back by the door. I was too educated for Henry Pichot. He had no use for me at all anymore. But just as Miss Emma had given so much of herself to that family, so had my aunt. So Henry Pichot, who cared nothing in the world for me, tolerated me because of my aunt. And what do you plan to do? He asked me. I shook my head. I have no idea. He stared at me, and I realized that I had not answered him in the proper manner. Sir, I added. 
You think you can change him from a hog to a man in the little time he got left? I have no idea, sir, I said. But you're willing to try if I can get Mr. Sam to let you go up there? That's what she wants, sir. But you didn't put her up to this? No, sir, I did not, I said. He was finished talking to me. Now he wanted me to look away. I lowered my eyes. When I raised my head, I saw his eyes on her again. I would forget all this if I were you, he said. Let Mose visit him and keep it at that. Reverend Mose will visit him, Miss Emma said. But no, sir, I won't keep it at that. At this point, I would be more concerned about his soul if I were you, Henry said. Yes, sir, I, I'm concerned for his soul, Mr. Henry, Miss Emma said. I'm concerned for his soul, but I want him to be a man too when he go to that chair. Louis Rogone, standing next to Henry Pichot, held his drink without drinking. He could not believe what he was hearing. Henry Pichot looked at me again. He was sure I had put her up to this. I shifted my eyes and I didn't look in his direction until I heard him speaking to her. Go on home. Forget all this foolishness, he told her. You have done all you could to raise him. Let the law have him now. The law got him, Mr. Henry, Miss Emma said, and they gonna kill him. But let them kill a man. Let the teacher go to him, Mr. Henry. I done done a lot for this family over the years. I know what you've done for this family over the years, he told her, and I know what he did. Or have you forgotten that? I ain't forgotten nothing, Mr. Henry, she said. I know what they say he did. He did it, Henry said, leaving no doubt in his mind. I spoke for him because of you, but all the time I knew he did it. If you say so, Mr. Henry, I say so, he said. That's not what I came up here for, Mr. Henry, Miss Emma said to him. I'm not begging for his life no more. That's over. I just want to see him die like a man. This family owe me that much, Mr. Henry, and I want it. I want somebody to do something for me one time before I close my eyes. Somebody got to do something for me one time before I close my eyes, Mr. Henry. Please, sir. From where I stood, back by the door, I could see my aunt tightening her grip around Miss Emma's shoulders to give her comfort. I'll speak to him, Henry said, but it's up to him, not me. Tell him what I done done for this family, Mr. Henry. Tell him to ask his wife all I done done for this family over the years. I said I would speak to him, Henry said, obviously becoming more and more impatient with her. When, she asked. Henry Pichot had started to raise his glass because for him, the conversation was over. But when Miss Emma spoke again, his hand dropped inches away from his mouth and he lowered the glass. What? When? Whenever I see him, that's when, he said. Now, if you don't mind, I have a guest. He drank and turned away. Mr. Henry, Miss Emma called him but he kept walking. I'll be up here again tomorrow, Mr. Henry. I'll be on my knees next time you see me, Mr. Henry. But she was speaking to an empty space. Henry Pichot and Louis Rigon were already in the library. Miss Emma continued to stare up the hall for a moment, 
Then she and my aunt turned away, and I held the door open for them to go outside. The sun had gone down, and it was getting colder. Four. I took them back down the quarter. When I stopped in front of Miss Emma's house, my aunt got out of the car with her. I'm going to Bayonne, I told my aunt. She had not shut the door yet. I'll be home to cook in a little while, she said. I'll eat in town, I told her. Tante Lou held the door while she stood there looking at me. Nothing could have hurt her more when I said I was not going to eat her food. I was supposed to eat soon after she had cooked, and if I was not at home, I was supposed to eat as soon as I came in. She looked at me without saying anything else. Then she closed the door quietly and followed Miss Emma into the yard. I turned the car around and started up the quarter again. There was not a single telephone in the quarter, not a public telephone anywhere that I could use before reaching Bayonne, and Bayonne was 13 miles away. After leaving the quarter, I drove down a graveled road for about two miles, then along a paved road beside the St. Charles River for another 10 miles. There were houses and big live oak and pecan trees on either side of the road, but not as many on the riverbank side. There, instead of houses and trees, there were fishing wharves, boat docks, nightclubs, and restaurants for whites. There were one or two nightclubs for colored, but they were not very good. As I drove along the river, I thought about all the schoolwork that I should have been doing at home, but I knew that after being around Miss Emma and Henry Pichot the past hour, I would not have been able to concentrate on my work. I needed to be with someone. I needed to be with Vivian. Bayonne was a small town of about 6,000, approximately 3,500 whites, approximately 2,500 colored. It was the parish seat for St. Raphael. The courthouse was there, so was the jail. There was a Catholic church uptown for whites, a Catholic church back of the town for colored. There was a movie theater uptown for whites and a colored movie theater back of town. There were two elementary schools uptown, one Catholic, one public for whites, and the same back of town for colored. Bayonne's major industries were a cement plant, a sawmill, and a slaughterhouse, mostly for hogs. There was only one main street in Bayonne, and it ran along the St. Charles River, the department stores, the bank, the two or three dentists and doctors and attorney's office were mostly on this street, which made up less than half a dozen blocks. After entering the town, which was marked by the movie theater for whites and the riverbank side of the road, I had to drive another two or three blocks before turning down an unlit road, which led back of town to the colored section. Once I crossed the railroad tracks, I could see the Rainbow Club with its green, yellow, and red arched neon lights. Several cars were parked before the door. One of them, a big white new 48 Cadillac, belonged to Joe Claiborne, who owned the place. A man and a woman came through the door as I got out of my car to go inside. There were probably a dozen people in the place, half of them at the bar, the rest of them sitting at tables with white tablecloths. I spoke to Joe Claiborne and went through a side door into the cafe to use the telephone. The tables in the cafe had checkered red and white tablecloths. 
Thelma Claiborne was behind the counter. Thelma ran the cafe, and her husband, Joe, ran the bar. I asked her what she had for supper. Smothered chicken, smothered beefsteaks, shrimp stew, she said. There was only one other person in the cafe, and he sat at the, at the counter eating the stewed shrimps. Shrimps any good? I asked Thelma. All my food's good, she said. Shrimps, I told her. While Thelma dished up my food, I went to the telephone in the corner by the toilet. It took Vivian a while to answer, and she didn't sound too happy about it. Did I get you at a bad time? I asked her. Getting these children something to eat, she said. Where are you? The Rainbow Club. Tonight? I need to see you, baby. I need to talk, I said. Is something the matter? I just need to talk to you, baby. That's all. You want to come over here? I can fix you a sandwich. No, I'm going to eat here at the cafe. I'll see if I can get Dora, she said. If I can't, you'll have to come over here. I can't leave the children alone. I understand. Thelma had the stewed shrimps, a green salad of lettuce, tomato, and cucumber, a piece of cornbread, and a glass of water on the counter waiting for me. Anything else to go with that? She asked. This'll do. Here or a table? She asked. The counter is good. What you doing in town on Monday? She asked. Calling Miss Fine Brown? I nodded. Figures, Thelma said and smiled. Thelma's mouth was full of gold teeth, solid gold as well as gold crowned. She also wore perfume that was strong enough to keep you a good distance away from her. I figured that's where most of their money went on those gold teeth, that perfume and payment on the new white Cadillac that Joe had parked before the door. But they were good people, both of them. When I was broke, I could always get a meal and pay later, and the same went for the bar. I talked with Thelma a while after I finished eating, then I paid her and went back to the other side. Usual? Claiborne asked me. He knew what I drank, but he would always ask. I nodded. What you doing here on Monday? He asked while pouring me a brandy. I needed a drink, I said. Sure, he said. He poured a glass of ice water and set it on the bar beside the brandy. I think I, I, think I know now, he said. Car lights had just flashed upon the front of the club, and I could hear the tires on the crushed seashells just right of the door. And sure enough, it was Vivian, and the men at the bar looked around at her when she came in. She was quite tall, 5'7", five, 5'8", five, and she wore a green wool sweater and a green and brown plaid skirt, and both fit her very well. She had soft, light brown skin and high cheekbones and greenish-yellow eyes, and her nostrils and lips showed some thickness, but not much. Her hair was long and black, and she kept it twisted in a bun and pinned at the back of her head. Vivian Baptiste was a beautiful woman, and she knew it, but she didn't flaunt it. It was just there. She came up to me, and a couple of the other men at the bar nodded and spoke to her. One tipped his hat and called her Miss Lady. You made it, I said. I got Dora. Usual? Claiborne asked her. She nodded toward my drink. Shirley can bring it to your table, Claiborne said. It won't tire her out, I hope. Claiborne grunted at me. It was a slow night. The few people at the bar were holding on to their glasses and not buying any more. 
Shirley, the waitress, was sitting on a bar stool at the far end, and she had not moved once since I had been there. Vivian and I went to a table far over into the corner where we could be alone. I'm glad you came, I said, and kissed her. Shirley brought the drinks and set them before us on paper napkins. Before leaving, she looked at me out of the corner of her eye to let me know she didn't like my remark at the bar. Vivian and I touched glasses and drank. What is the matter, Grant? she asked. I just had to see you. Is something the matter? When was the last time I told you I loved you? A second ago. I should say it more often, I said. What is the matter, Grant? she asked me again. You want me to leave from here tonight? I asked her. You want me to go home and, and pack your clothes and get the children and leave from here tonight? She looked at me as though she was trying to figure out whether I was serious or not. No, she said. Why not? I asked her. Because the whole thing is just too crazy, she said. People do it all the time, just pack up and leave. Some people can, but we can't, she said. We're teachers and we have a commitment. You hit the nail on the head there, lady. Commitment. Commitment to what? To live and die in this hellhole when we can leave and live like other people? How much have you had to drink, Grant? A whole fucking barrel of commitment, I said and raised my glass. Do you want me to leave, Grant? She asked. You know I don't like it when you talk like that. No, I don't want you to leave. Please don't leave me. I, I told her. She reached over and touched my hand. Then she began to rub the knuckles with her fingers. I needed to go someplace where I can feel I'm living, I said. I don't want to spend the rest of my life teaching school in a plantation church. I want to be with you someplace where we could have a choice of things to do. I don't feel alive here. I'm not living here. I, I know we could do better someplace else. I'm still married, Vivian said. A separation is not a divorce. I can't go anywhere under until all this is over with. That's not what's keeping you here. Even after the divorce, you'll still feel committed, I said. And you, Grant, I'm tired of feeling committed. Then why haven't you gone? Because of you? That's not true, Grant, and you know it, she said. We met only three years ago. I was still married, pregnant with my second child. You told me then how much you always wanted to get away. And you did once. You remember that? You went away to California to visit your mother and father. But you wouldn't stay. You couldn't stay. You had to come back. Why did you come back, Grant? Why? I want to go now, and I want you to go with me. I'm still married, Grant. After the divorce? She nodded. After the divorce, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as you're responsible for what you do. In other words, if I fail, I will have to blame myself for the rest of my life for trying. Is that it? I'll leave all that up to you, Grant, if you still want me after the divorce. I'll always want you, I said, and touched her hand. And if you don't know that by now, I, I don't know what you do know about me. A couple from one of the other tables had gotten up and chosen a record on the jukebox. It was a blues, the tempo slow, and the two people danced close together. I needed Vivian closer to me than she was now, and I asked her if she wanted to dance. 
We left the table, and I took her in my arms, and I could feel her breast through that sweater, and I could feel her thighs through that plaid skirt, and now I felt very good. We danced for a while. I, I didn't want to say it, but I had to say it. They gave him death, I said. She and I had talked about it on the weekend, and I did not want to talk about it now or even think about it now, but it was the only thing that stayed on my mind. I could feel her body go tense against me. We danced a while. They want me to visit him. That would be nice, Grant. They want me to make a man of him before he dies. She stopped dancing and she stood back to look at me. Her face was twisted into a painful, questioning frown. The public defender, trying to get him off, called him a dumb animal, I told her. He said it would be like it would be like tying a hog down to the chair and executing him, an animal that didn't know what any of it was all about. The jury, twelve white men, good and true, still sentenced him to death. Now his godmother wants me to visit him and make him know, prove to these white men that he's not a hog, that he's a man. I'm supposed to make him a man. Who am I, God? The record ended and we went back to our table. I still don't know if the sheriff will even let me visit him. And suppose he did. What then? What do I say to him? Do I know what a man is? Do I know how a man is supposed to die? I, I'm still trying to find out how a man should live. Am I supposed to tell someone how to die who has never lived? Vivian lowered her head. Suppose I was allowed to visit him. And suppose I reached him and made him realize that he was as much a man as any other man. Then what? He's still going to die the next day, the next week, the next month. So what will I have accomplished? What will I have done? Why not let the hog die without knowing anything? Vivian raised her head to look at me and she was crying. I took one of her hands and both of mine. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this to you. I, I don't want to do this to you. I just didn't know where else to turn. I want you to come to me, Grant. She said, I want you to always come to me. Shirley walked over to the table to pick up our empty glasses. Y'all want anything, Mo? She asked. Another round, I told her. She left. I want you to go up there, Vivian said. They make those decisions, sweetheart. I don't. If they say yes, I want you to go for me. For you? For us, Grant. I looked at her and she looked back at me. She had meant what she said. I don't know if I can take it. I really don't. I know you can. I'll need you every moment. I'll be here. Shirley came back with the drinks and set them down on a clean, dry paper napkin. She looked at me again the same way to let me know she didn't like my remark at the bar earlier. Shirley is still mad, Vivian said after she had gone. I'll leave her a good tip, I said. Vivian raised her glass to me and smiled. You have the most beautiful smile, I said. She smiled again. What are you doing this weekend? I asked her. Homework and housework, what else? Would you like to go to Baton Rouge one night, Friday or Saturday? I'll pay Dora. Friday sounds good, she said. We had friends in Baton Rouge who know about her pending divorce and knew about my aunt, and they let us stay a while at their place while they went out to a bar. 
Sometimes we would join them at the bar later. Other times we would just leave the key in an envelope with a thank you note. But we were both getting very tired of that. We touched glasses and finished our drinks. Then we left. Five. We pledged allegiance to the flag. The flag hung limp from a ten-foot bamboo pole in the corner of the white picket fence that surrounded the church. Beyond the flag, I could see smoke rising from the chimneys in the quarter, and beyond the houses and chimneys, I could hear tractors harvesting sugarcane in the fields. The sky was ashy gray and the air chilly enough for a sweater. I told the children to go inside and begin their Bible verses. After listening to one or two of the verses, I, I turned out the rest of them. I tuned out the rest of them. I had heard them all so many times. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Jesus wept and so on and so on and so on. And I had listened to them almost six years. And I knew who would say what just as I knew what each child would wear to school and who or who would not know his or have her lesson. I knew too which of them would do something for themselves and which of them never would, regardless of what I did. So each day I listened for a moment, then turned it off and planned the rest of the day. My classroom was the church. My classes ranged from primer to sixth grade. My pupils from six years old to 13 and 14. My desk was a table used as a collection table by the church on Sundays and also used for the service of the Holy Sacrament on the fourth Sunday of each month. My students' desks were benches upon which their parents and grandparents sat during church meeting. The students either got down on their knees and used the bench as desks to write upon or used the backs of their books upon their laps to write out their assignments. Ventilation into the church was by way of the four windows on either side and from the front and back doors. Our heat came from a wood-burning stove in the center of the church. There was a blackboard on the back wall and another on the right side wall. Behind my desk was the pulpit and the altar. There were three pictures on the wall behind the altar. One was a head and chest black and white photo of the minister in a dark suit, white shirt and dark tie. The other two pictures were color prints of Jesus, the Last Supper, and Christ knocking on a door. This was my school. I was supposed to teach six months out of the year, but actually I taught only five and a half months from late October to the middle of April when the children were not needed in the field. I assigned three of my sixth grade students to teach the primer, first and second grades, while I taught third and fourth. Only by assigning the upper grade students to teach the lower grades was it possible to reach all students every day. I devoted the last two hours in the afternoon to the fifth and sixth grades. While the classes separated and moved to their respective areas, I asked my third and fourth graders to go back, to go to the back of the church to work on the blackboards. The third grade class would do arithmetic on the board and the back wall, and the fourth graders would write sentences on the board on the right side wall. I moved from one blackboard to the other with my yard-long Westcott ruler. I still felt bad about the problem I was having at home with my aunt. The night before, when I returned from Bayonne, I had gone to her room to say goodnight, but she pretended to be asleep just to avoid speaking to me. 
And this morning when I passed her on my way into the kitchen, she said over her shoulder, boo there if you want it, or you can go back where you had supper last night. Breakfast was two fried eggs, grits, a piece of salt pork, and a biscuit. I ate at the kitchen table looking across the yard. The crabgrass was wet from the night's heavy dew. I looked back over my shoulder a couple of times, but I couldn't hear my aunt anywhere in the house. After I finished eating, I washed my plate and the pan of soap water that she had left on the shelf in the kitchen window. I tried once more to speak to her before leaving for school, but to avoid me this time, she, she pretended to make up her bed, which I knew she had already done two hours earlier. At a quarter to nine, I left the house. She had gone out into the garden. Every little thing was irritating me. I caught one of the students trying to figure out a simple multiplication problem on his fingers, and I slashed him hard across the butt with the Westcott ruler. He jerked around too fast and looked at me too angrily for my liking. Your hand, I said. He held out his right hand, palm up. He still held the piece of chalk. Put that chalk down. I can't afford to break it. He passed the piece of chalk to his left hand and held out the right hand to me again. I brought the Westcott down into his palm. You figure things out with your brains, not with your fingers, I told him. Yes, sir, Mr. Wiggins. He turned back to the board and, started and stared at the problem at least half a minute. It was cold in the back of the church, but standing two feet away from the boy, I could see that he was sweating. He raised his left hand up to his eyes to wipe away tears, then stared at the problem again. Well, others have to work too, you know. Yes, sir, Mr. Wiggins. The back of his neck shone with sweat. He wiped his eyes again, then he wrote down an answer, large, awkward, and of course incorrect. You used enough chalk for five times that many problems, I told him. Where do you think we're going to get more chalk when this runs out? He didn't answer. Well, I said, I don't know, Mr. Wiggins, he said, staring at the board, not daring to look at me. I'd have to buy it, I said. The school board doesn't give it away. They already gave me what they said was enough for the year. They're not giving us any more. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes, sir, Mr. Wiggins. I jerked a piece of chalk out of his hand, corrected the problem, passed the piece of chalk onto another student and walked away. On the sideboard, one of the girls, wearing a gray dress and a black sweater, unpolished brown loafers and unmatching brown stockings, her head a forest of half a dozen two-inch plaits, had written a sentence of six words with a downward slant of nearly a foot. And what is that supposed to be? I asked her. She was so terrified by my voice that she jerked around to face me, then staggered back against the board. This! This, this, she stuttered while gesturing toward the board with a piece of chalk. That's a, that, that, that's a, 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 that's a simple sentence, Mr. Wiggins. That's not a simple sentence, I told her. That's a slanted sentence. A simple sentence is written on a straight line. I reached for the piece of chalk, but in her fear of me, she continued to hold on to it, and I had to pry it out of her hand. I drew three straight lines from one end of the board to the other. Those are straight lines, I said. Do you notice the difference? She nodded her head while looking at me, not at the board. 
I erased the three lines as well as her slanted sentence. I want you to write me six simple sentences in straight lines, I said, and handed her the chalk. You have until the end of the period to do it. The rest of the class, take your seats. I left her standing there trying to figure out where to begin. At the door, I turned back to look at the other classes. They all knew I was in a pretty rotten mood today and they kept their heads down. I went out into the yard, slapping the Westcott ruler against my leg hard enough to sting it. The cool air felt good on my face, and after standing in the yard a while, I walked to the road. But there was nothing to see out there but a couple of automobiles, my gray Ford parked down the quarter in front of my aunt's house, and a car parked alongside the ditch farther up the quarter. Other than that, all there was to see were old, gray, weather-beaten houses with smoke rising out of the chimneys and drifting across the corrugated tin roofs. Living and teaching on a plantation, you got to know the occupants of every house, and you knew who was home and who was not. I knew that the parents and the older brothers and sisters of the boy I had slashed on the butt with my ruler were out in the field, and that the old grandma... Aunt June was at home cooking dinner for them to eat when they came home, when they came in at noon. I could see the smoke rising from the chimney of the girl who stuttered, and I knew that she came from a family of 12 and that she had a pregnant older sister who was not allowed to come back to school, but had to work in the field with all the others, and that she had an idiot brother and a tyrant father, and that the father beat the pregnant girl and any other member of the family, including the mother, but would never touch the idiot whom he showered with love. I could look at the smoke rising from each chimney, or I could look at the rusted tin roof of each house, and I could tell the lives that went on in each of them. I went all the way to the back of the yard where I used the boy's toilet. Then I returned to my classes, but instead of coming in through the front door as I had left, I entered through the back. Most of the students remembered the mood I was in and had their heads and their books but one first grader had forgotten or didn't care, and he found time to play with a bug on the sleeve of his sweater. As I watched from the back door, he let the insect crawl an inch or two from his elbow toward his hand, and then he picked it up and returned it to his arm to let it start all over again. I looked at Irene Cole, my student teacher, to let her, to let her know not to warn him, and when I got in good striking distance of this nearly shaved head, I brought the Westcott down on his skull, loud enough to send a sound throughout the church. He jumped, hollered, grabbed at the already swelling knot. One or two of the students near him giggled nervously, but most, but most remembered the mood I was in and seemed petrified. The boy, with his hand cupped over the welt, was crying now. Take that thing outside, get rid of it, and get back in here. I told him. He left, crying quietly, the little red bug sitting on top of his extended arm. So it's bug playing time, huh? I asked the rest of the class. You think that's why I'm here, so that you can play with bugs, huh? The boy came back and sat down. His hand was still cupped over his scalp, and he was still crying. The rest of you, back to your seats, I ordered. They moved hurriedly, quietly, careful not to utter a word. Do you all know what is going on in Bayonne?
Thank you guys so much for listening to the preview of Ernest J. Gaines' A Lesson Before Dying, read here at Carla Reads the Classics. I really appreciate it. I would ask you to please subscribe to the podcast for more readings and also head over to the YouTube channel and click the subscribe button there too, if you would. And uh, if you like merchandise, check the episode details for how you can get that as well. Uh, Please come back for the remainder of this wonderful novel that the Chicago Tribune says will be read, discussed, and taught beyond the rest of our lives. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. Thanks again for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. Mm-hmm.